welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast, where four friends get together to talk about movies they watched. <laughs> I, I just got tired of saying the full length. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> yeah, go back, long. watch an old episode. Um, <laughs> yeah. For those of you I'm going to really piss off our four fans. <laughs> right. For those of you unfamiliar, Movie Mumble is just a monthly, you know, movie club where the four of us take turns picking a movie and then we watch it and then we talk about it and that's it there are no rules we can pick any film at all foreign domestic animated live action uh something we've seen a million times or never seen before you know it's just sort of based on the idea that we all get more out of these when we share them with each other which has proven true many many times in this podcast um each month, you know, we rotate who decides. Uh, this month was Joel's selection. And of each episode, we announce what we're watching next month so you can watch along with us. This is going to go so great. I'm already doing my sentences. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, it's only been a long week. It's so, fine. <laughs> this week's been a month, as they say. Um, so, yeah, we announce at the end of each episode we're watching next episode. So you can watch along with us if you'd like. And uh, if you're worried about spoilers, please watch the film before you watch its episode because we tend to summarize the whole thing and discuss it pretty thoroughly. After that, we just kind of see where the conversation goes. We don't discuss that one film the whole time. And uh, that's, that's about it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so thank you all for coming back. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my hopefully not murderously insane friends, <laughs> Joel Lewis. My man, man, Hunter. Two times in a row that joke landed. I don't know Gerard. if it landed. <laughs> okay. I don't think you get to decide if it lands. <laughs> I, I listen to the podcast more than anybody else, so it lands oh, for man. me every time. All right. Also joined by Tim Gerard. Hello. And by Zeke Perez. Hello, Clarice. Oh, good. Oh, not canon. Right. Not canon. Wrong, wrong movie. Oh, oh. oh. I like how you wrong checked movie. your earpiece. Your like you were a newscaster. Right. Oh, man. Thank you all for joining me again. And Joel, thank you for being our movie selector this month. You brought us Manhunter, the 1986 film, one of many films based on the Hannibal Lecter Will Graham books. Yes, sir. Sir, why don't you tell us a little bit about the film, why you chose it? Uh, you know, our usual movie picker <laughs> introduction time, please. Yeah, so uh, it's it's pretty well documented my my fandom of the Hannibal Lecter universe. Um, Zeke is responsible for that, um, having introduced me to Silence of the Lambs. Um, I believe it was sophomore. Yeah, it was sophomore year of college. Mm -hmm. um, I hadn't been a really spooky movie fan. And even afterwards, I really wasn't other than Hannibal films. Um, and he was like, you haven't seen this. You need to see this. And we saw it. And then I ended up buying all the rest of the Anthony Hopkins films on iTunes shortly after and watching them and watching them and watching them. And then everybody knows my obsession with the Hannibal TV series. But um, Manhunter was kind of the last part of that universe I consumed, I think, until the books. I think I read the books following Manhunter. Um, so it, it's, it's a very different film from the whole other, every other exploration of the universe. It's very different. Although the story is the same, the Red Dragon plot is very similar um, in each, each one of those iterations, the Hannibal series, um, the Anthony Hopkins films, and 
Manhunter all do their own version of Red Dragon. So I've seen this story play out several times in different ways. And I, it's probably the story I've seen interpreted the most, which is a really kind of interesting way to view a film. Um, and this came across, I, I, I wanted to bring a Hannibal Lecter film to the podcast. Um, Science of the Lambs seemed like the easy choice and we might watch it at some, it's a, that's an impeccable film. I mean, it's, it's damn near perfect and chilling and it's a, I mean, Academy Award winning performance and uh, Jody is insane in it. Like it, it's just a really interesting version of the world. Um, but this, I, I kind of characterize as the art house interpretation which is odd to say in comparison to brian fuller's series which is very art house and very purple and bloated to use his words and i'm gonna try not to make this too much of a hannibal the series uh just word vomit thing but yeah i, I it, it's a michael mann directed and interpreter uh ad adapted screenplay um i had seen heat previous to seeing this one um and the first time I watched it, it was kind of strange. It's very 80s. It's, it's very unapologetically 80s. Um, and it's a weird kind of... Uh, the ending plays out a little bit differently from how we see it in uh, the other versions and in the book. Um, and I can kind of talk about the plot before I get too uh, waxing poetic about it. But uh, it's about um, Inspector Will Graham. Used to work with the Behavioral Science Unit at Quantico. Um, and there's been this serial killer killing families very viciously, very brutally. Um, Will used to work for the Bureau. He's since retired after a very traumatic experience with Dr. Hannibal Lecter, um, whose name is spelled differently in this film, which is very strange. A um, little odd. I don't know why they did that. Um, uh, but it's, it's a very different Hannibal Lecter, too, and we can kind of talk about that. But um, he... he He's unique as an investigator for his ability to imagine what the killers are thinking, kind of reconstruct their fantasies. He has a very, he's an aptitude for empathy. And so his, he's being brought back in because this killer seems to be on a lunar cycle. They've had two killings. They have about a month to find out who he is and try and intervene before more bodies hit the floor. Um, so Jack Crawford, who's played by uh, Dennis Farina, one of my favorite versions of Jack Crawford. I've seen, again, three of them. Um, and I love Farina. He is such a... It's, it's so interesting to watch him play Integrity because one of my favorite versions, like characters that he's played, it was in Get Shorty. He plays a mob boss who's just a little shit through the whole movie. And that mustache, that face, the way he delivers things. He also plays uh, in Little Big League. He plays the um, one of the managers, I guess. The guy who the little kid fires to take over the Minnesota Twins. So I've always had like a very specific view of that actor. Sorry, I'm, I'm supposed to be summarizing the film. So he comes, tries to recruit uh, Will to come back and help. Will agrees and he's investigating and he has this kind of voyeuristic, imaginative way of reconstructing the killer's fantasies. He's having trouble with it. So he goes to visit Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who he had gotten in the head of to catch him. And he goes to him to try and recapture kind of the killer mindset. And it goes well and bad. And it's kind of this cat and mouse game between this 
a faceless killer until the very last part of the film. We don't really see Francis Dollarhide, the Tooth Fairy, or Red Dragon kind of materialize as a person until the latter half of the film. And it's just kind of about Will's difficulty in trying to get into that mindset and trying to catch him, um, only seeing what he's left in his wake. And uh, it's... It's spectacular. I love this film. It's, again, really unapologetically 80s. And it's something that's kind of off, uh, not off-putting. I think it's, it's uncomfortable to, to come into with a modern, in quotation marks, sensibility for film. It's so drenched in 80s. It's so uh, Miami Vice-hued. And that's a, a show that Michael Mann uh, executive produced. So there's a lot of fingers in that pie where it's this very 80s, very neo uh, neon, uh, rather, um, presentation. The score is very eighties. It's, 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 but I think it, it, it's unique in how it uses every color of filmmaking, the, the, the sound, uh, the visuals, those gels that he uses, the light things is just mind blowing. And the performances are really unique. I mean, seeing these characters play out in multiple versions, these ones kind of stick out as unique and, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of summary first impression. I love this film, um, and it's it was interesting because we were as we were going into the um, the Matrix film, um, and then uh, Inside Man. I was trying to think of what my my film was going to be, and I I just put this on kind of on a whim, and I was like, well, this is the one. And then I watched it again more recently, so I've watched this in the last two or three weeks twice. So I'm I'm. I'm very excited. It, it, it seems to glean new things every time I watch it. And I was really excited to get to talk about Hannibal Lecter and that universe, but also this specific version of it. So, yeah, thank you. Those are all pretty excellent reasons honestly, <laughs> to bring a film to us. I'm trying I, to, we, I'm trying to aim for a little less than Tim when he, cause Tim does a really good thing. Like not good is subjective, but I really enjoy it. Cause when he summarizes a matrix film, it is a long, long journey. <laughs> I tried well, to curtail. I like them. that you've brought us in to your, you know, Hannibal Love. Well, I mean, podcast-wise, you brought us in <laughs> obliquely. You know, I, yeah. I appreciate that. So, yeah, I like that a lot. So, should we move on to first impressions from the rest of us? Uh, rather, if you'd like to yeah. begin, or. Yeah, no, I uh, I love this one. Um, yeah, it was great to watch. Um, Joel, you mentioned how, you know, we watched Silence of the Lambs together. I feel like, uh, I don't know, I, I think probably I was like your Hannibal sensei. I've been watching a lot of Cobra Kai. Um, yeah. But like I <laughs> sent you on your journey. You did. And like I, but like all I had really seen was Silence of the Lambs and then uh, a bootleg version of Red Dragon, <laughs> which um, <laughs> I, I've mentioned, I, Joel knows this one, but like we got the DVD from the bootleg guy as you do and then popped it in and uh, it's like one of the, they shot it from a movie theater with the camcorder <laughs> and everything. And like 20 minutes into oh, the movie, some oh, guy no. stands up like two rows in front. He's like, hey, fuck this. I'm going to go get some popcorn. And then, that was kind of, I don't know. That's my memory of that. Do you have it still? We probably do somewhere. Because I'll I look. would love to buy it from you. I would love <laughs> that. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a one of a kind. <laughs> um, such a good copy. Uh, but yeah, so I, you know, and then you introduced me to Hannibal the show once you got rolling on your adventure. Um, 
So really, you know, I, I'd seen Silence of the Lambs, Bootleg, Red Dragon, Hannibal the Show. Haven't seen anything else. So this was new for me. Um, and it was great to get to go into the universe a little bit more um, and just, yeah, just dig in a little bit and kind of notice some of the similarities and differences and, you know, the portrayal of Will Graham in the TV show versus here. Um, you know, the kind of get the same formula with, uh, you know, Will and Clarice meet Hannibal for the first time and what that's like. And then, you know, tracking down the killer in that cat and mouse game. Um, it all plays out very much the same, but very different. Like I kind of thought of it as like, uh, like an earth two and then like an alternate universe. Oh yeah. Sort of thing. Like, I like that. Um, cause you get a lot of the same things, but like different characters are flipped in and out. Um, but no, I, I, yeah, first impressions are I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed, um, you know, the eightiesness of it. I really enjoyed getting to dig into some of those other characters and, um, yeah, this was a fun one. So I'm excited to go. You'll be happy to hear. I'm excited to go rewatch or watch more of Hannibal because I don't think I got to finish the, the show. So I'm awesome. ready to dig in. Yeah, it's on it's on Netflix now. Oh, so. perfect. <laughs> this was my, my secret plan. <laughs> Not so secret. <laughs> what about you, Tim? Um, so this was actually, well, I had seen the other movies i still haven't seen a hannibal series um but this was the only one of the movies that i hadn't seen so i was kind of looking forward to kind of you know finally finishing that collection um and you know to sort of bring up a, a throwback uh i think i first learned about this back in my blockbuster days because i think around Ooh. then was when the hannibal movie had come out so yeah. of course blockbuster was like hey here's all the other stuff in that universe that you should rent before you go see hannibal in the theaters you know and, and I think my store didn't have a copy of Manhunter. So, I mean, it was in the advertisements and I was like, oh, okay. And I remember like being at like Best Buy and seeing it on the shelf, but like, I'm, I'm not going to buy this. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know if I'm even going to like it. You know, it's like, I feel like, like I've never heard of this before. Like everybody does Silence of the Lambs, but like, who knows that Manhunter is part of that same universe. And it's like, okay how good is it if I haven't heard of this? So I just never was able to, to, to see it, you know? So I was glad to finally get to see it. Um, but one of the things that was kind of tough is it, I did see Red Dragon and mm. I really loved that. And, yeah. you know, up until that point of the three I had seen between Red Dragon, Sounds of the Lambs and Hannibal, like Red Dragon was my favorite of the three. So, so it's kind of tough to watch this and not be comparing it to Red Dragon. Like, yeah. I'll admit that. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to. And luckily, it's been a while since I've seen Red Dragon. I think it was basically just when it came out on video, I rented it and watched it, I think. But I don't think I've seen it since. Um, so, so it was, yeah, it was kind of weird to kind of see it knowing that it's like, okay, the same story. But, and I remember... And I think that was the good thing too, is I, I remember there being some discrepancies with one of them, like one of them took more liberties from the book, but I didn't know which one it was. Yeah. So, um, but, um, but yeah, it was still, it was still good. I think there was enough, enough distance that it wasn't like, this isn't Red Dragon, therefore it's bad. It was like, you know, I kind of was watching it as a kind of fresh new thing. Um, I think it also helps too that like, you know, it's, you know, that with that eighties part of it, um, it looks more like it came before Silence of the Lambs than Red Dragon does, because Red Dragon right. kind of has more polish to it. Yeah. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, like I, I I enjoyed it. It was definitely like very you know very creepy in all the ways it's supposed to be creepy. Um, 
I, I, I kind of liked Brian Cox's Hannibal, you know, like, I mean, I, it wasn't like, you know, again, I'm not enough of a diehard fan of Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter where I'm like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, but it was like, okay, this is obviously going to be different. Like I'll, I'll let it be different. And I, I kind of liked what he brought to it. I feel like, um, um, you know, yeah, it was good. I mean, there were, there were a few kind of cheesy dramatic moments that I kind of chuckled at, like, uh, there's one in the hotel room when, when Graham is like calling one of his superiors and he like puts his hand up on the wall all dramatically while he's talking on the phone. It was like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, so like little moments like that were kind of funny, but overall, like I, you know, as, as eighties as it was, it didn't really pull me out of the story all that much. Um, the reporter guy kind of did, but I feel like that was almost the point. Like he, he was oh, meant to be a caricature. It, this which, version of Freddie Lowndes is, that that character is so canonically smarmy and this might be the most like freddy quake freddy version of it just so awful tina tina was watching on and off and she's like i just want to punch him <laughs> like that's yeah. that's exactly the character <laughs> my notes for him are just freddy lounds lol <laughs> that's just all i wrote down about you've him. never you've never been so willing to let a character be killed right <laughs> so violently and yeah. so horrifically <laughs> yeah and you you so quickly gloss over the fact that it was essentially like graham's fault that he died yeah. you're like ah whatever and hannibal, talks, <laughs> yeah, uh, hannibal says it's like i love yeah. the number that you did on freddie Lowndes. that yeah and that that's consistent through the book and every iteration is like hannibal is very intrigued and pleased by this kind of darkness to will <laughs> yeah um and, and that was that's definitely one of the things that I'm looking forward to you getting into. So I won't I won't necessarily ask you for it now because I'm sure you'll get into kind of the comparisons between the two in the book. But I, I was you know when I, when I would notice a difference, I kept kind of thinking like, okay, well, which one is the original? You know, and um, like of course one of the one of the things with him, like the 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 fact that um, in Red Dragon when. Uh, um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is glued to that wheelchair yeah. like naked I was just like oh fuck like and then so again like to go back and watch this one like oh he's just kind of his arms were like taped and he was still fully clothed and it's like but like you know the vulnerability of just like okay this isn't just you're you're tied up or taped somewhere like this is this is like your skin like you're you know this this wasn't meant to be an easy get out of you know mm -hmm. um you know and, and the vulnerability of being nude there you know like that that scene was just so much more horrifying in red dragon um mm -hmm. but uh but you know it still had a lot of the same the same elements of the you know the reveal of him um but then again there was also like oh like he's not going to strip nude in front of him and show him his red dragon tattoo um, and that was one of my other big some, some mythology on that too. Yeah. Go ahead. As far as the, uh, like why they didn't show it or. Yeah. So they, they had shot a version of most of the scenes with him wearing, having the tattoo Oh. Okay. and, and Noonan had had makeup working on it several hours going into shooting. And every single time he came to Michael Mann, Michael would just like, and he would he would mark on it and he would say this needs to be here i'm just not feeling it and they they shot and they shot and they shot i mean even the the um the disc um has versions of stills of him with the tattoo and a lot of the a lot of the um promotional material and the later uh dvd versions have him with the tattoo on the cover 
they used it really well for marketing, but they never show it. And it's because Michael, Michael thought it undermined the performance. It was too distracting. It was not, you didn't get to see the, because I mean, there's a very uh, vulnerable moment after he's, he's had sex with Reba where he's, he's sitting there and he's lying and his face is, or his chest is uncovered and he moves her hand to his face Mm-hmm. mirroring what she had done with the lion or the tiger yeah. that kind of vulnerability like that's his main facial deformity that affects his speech that's why he doesn't say yes that hair lip is very sensitive for him and for him to to do that he seen michael mann said that that undermined the vulnerability and the importance of that moment to have this big red grotesque dragon across mm-hmm. his chest for that moment and i mean you've seen I mean, I've seen three versions of the tattoo. Um, the the one in Red Dragon is is a very it's a uh, uh, an abstract taken of it. It's very kind of abstract and and cleaner lines and very interesting. I mean, it has a little curl of a tail down his uh, shin, which or uh, mm-hmm. quad or calf. I guess that's the word. Yeah. Um, really interesting. Uh, but yeah, Michael Mann just, he, this is a more liberal take with the script. He, this is very different because the Red Dragon, the movie is very, it's almost taken directly from the book oh, mean, okay. in, in terms of the, the plot unfolding. So this, this is the more experimental, like, uh, um, uh, adaptation mm-hmm. of the two. Okay. And, and, you know, I think, and that was the thing too, is like part of what I also found like horrifying about that in the version is like, it was almost like, is is there something supernatural in this world? Like he was, he was reaching for this supernatural, you know, this, oh, I'm, what I'm becoming. Yeah. And and it almost like later on, um, watching, uh, uh, split, um, you know, reminded me of that. Yeah. So it was like, it was this idea that like, and, and, and that reveal in, Red Dragon, when he shows it to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, like, you know, the horror that must have been of like, oh my God, like maybe this guy is becoming like the devil, like the red, you know, it's like, holy shit, you know? And um, yeah, it just, you know, it was, it definitely felt like to me, like it, it was something, something missing. And again, it's because I had already seen that version and, you know, and it goes, it falls right in line with all the things I like, the kind of this, this quasi mythological biblical aspect of it, like yeah. underneath this whole thing. And, um, you know, and, and, and that's another reason, one of my favorite parts, why I was glad that this kind of came into it when, when he's talking to Hannibal Lecter on the phone, which I love that scene when Graham's in the, the, the dark room with the dark yeah. clothes and the yep. white phone and then yep. Lecter's in the bright white cell, the white clothes and the black phone. I was like, oh, okay, this right here, this, this yin and yang. I love it's it. It's so great. And that even their, their postures in that scene are yeah. so different. So like the laid back, nonchalant, talking about mm-hmm. very terrible, terrifying things. Hannibal's like, killing must feel good to God too. God's terrific. He does it all the time. He dropped a roof on 70 of his worshipers. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that it, it, the nonchalant nature of Cox's uh, uh, portrayal in that scene is just outstanding. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that part of it too, the fact that like God came into it, into the yeah. discussion, but it's like, you know, from the, from, you know, Hannibal's point of view. Yeah. And so I thought that was great. It wasn't, you know, usually in a, I feel like in a situation like that, you know, you've got the, uh, you know, the quote unquote, the good guy being like, well, you know, 
uh, I still believe in God. So there's going to be an order to things and a plan and blow. But it was like, no, it's, it's, it's the, the killer who's like, yeah, God is great. You know, like it must be great to be, you know, and if you imitate him long enough, you can become it, you know, and it was just like, Oh, like that, that, that was probably my favorite scene. I don't know if there was a scene like that or similar to that in red dragon. I couldn't remember, but that was probably my favorite. I guess I'm getting to a, a spot of the thing too early in terms mm. of my favorite scene, but um, there's a line in, in the Hannibal series called typhoid and swans. It all comes from the same place. I don't know if that's directly lifted from the books, but it's a very Thomas Harrisy type of, of turn of phrase that mm-hmm. it's, if God's there, he's, he's responsible for it all. And yeah, that's Hannibal's all thought. It, yeah. 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 That's great. <laughs> so so two more things that i just want to mention that i noticed that you can get into discussing now or later or if you're already planning on discussing them the two things that kind of stuck out um is that in the score and i don't think this was source music i think it was the score i kept hearing the baseline of comfortably numb by pink floyd oh shit and so i don't know if that's something that's ever been discussed mm-hmm. um it's mm-hmm. the, like the baseline to the verses not the chorus uh-huh. um and like I heard it in at least two different places so much that the second, the first time I heard it, it was kind of like this little thing. Where do I know that baseline from? And then the second time I was like, there it is again. And I listened to it enough and I was like, okay, I know. And I had to sort of piece together what song it was from kind of lead from the verse into the court. But I was like, Oh yeah, that's comfortably numb. Okay. Um, but again, it wasn't a recording of comfortably. Numb. Right. Um, so that was something I noticed that I didn't know if you had any insight into. Um, and then the other thing, I also like the use of uh, Inagata de Vida at the end and how, how well that was used to almost score the scene. Right. Where, like, it, wasn't, it wasn't just like, okay, we're just kind of referencing this song. They purposefully picked different parts of it to actually follow the action. Um, and also I thought it was kind of funny too, because like, I remember someone, I don't know if it was my dad or someone from years ago saying that like, Oh, it, they meant in the garden of Eden, but they were on too many drugs. And that's how it came out. <laughs> in the garden of Eden. You know? So it's like, okay, it's this vague biblical reference again. Um, uh, also the fact that it's by iron butterfly, like yep. iron butterfly, red dragon. Yep. Okay. I kind of see there's like little relationships there. So, so yeah. So that even though, like, as, like I said, as much as I liked red dragon, it was a lot for me to really enjoy about this and, and kind of dig into and get into that's awesome i do want to talk about the music um i'm not aware of it, them referencing conflict comfortably numb i wouldn't be surprised though um i'll have to report back after i get that uh deluxe uh uh blu-ray because they have the the specific interview with the composer i think music in this film is just insanely good and and there's little thi- I, I don't want to get into too much of it but like every second that you think Oh, this is an odd use of this song. It, it, it realizes itself and it, it comes into focus in a way that's surprising and it just it lands every time, at least in my, in my perception of it. Because, um, I mean, you have that scene where they, there's such an opportunity for a saxophone cue for sex in this movie and it doesn't fucking land. It doesn't. It doesn't in this film and I think it's so smart and so fresh but you have that when you have the relationship between Reba and Dollar Hyde kind of developing, then you get pop songs coming in. It's been this mm-hmm. kind of synth pop, 80s orchestral kind right. of undulating, building the tension in this, this mystery. And as we start to see Dollar Hyde as a person kind of develop, you get this pop song and it kind of signals changes in his character as we go through those three songs. I don't know the, the name of the song for the sex sings, but... Um, 
there's later we have the uh, strong as I am, and then the Indigata Davida. And uh, I don't I, I don't want to get. I'm very excited to talk about that, but let, I want to get uh, Scott's first impressions real quick. I mean, I, the first impression is it's of the time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, for better and for worse, <laughs> because there are parts about this that I that I love. Behold the the broody long shots of a character and a really cool colored background of some kind or the like the scale of the buildings in relation to the person and and the like synthy blade runnery soundtrack like those parts of 80s filmmaking just resonate with me and here when that was just the thing to do it worked great but then there were all the other parts that don't resonate with me that i'm glad we've left behind that um you know, oh well, like it's from the 80s. I can't, you know, I can't fault it for that. I guess I'm just relieved that we get to cherry pick nowadays, right? Um, but outside of that, I I mean, I guess I, I liked it a lot, but I, I liked it in very non-specific ways, whereas the complaints are more particular, so I guess it's going to sound kind of negative, but Will Graham Peterson never quite landed for me as Graham. It just didn't quite come together. I don't know if it was him or Michael Mann, but someone decided that his facial expressions shouldn't be very expressive. I guess based on the assumption that we'd see it in his eyes instead, and it just never happened for me. But man, the whole rest of the cast, oh damn, I'm, I'm in love. I might prefer Brian Cox to... Uh, Hopkins? Hopkins, yeah. Wow. I really might. Bold. There was something about the body language and the voice that all just came together in this really particular way. Although admittedly, some of that was the shock of seeing Ryan Cox young. Right. And hearing his yeah. voice be totally unchanged. Yeah. <laughs> so do, did you guys notice he's doing the, the uh, McDonald's ads now? What? He goes ba 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 at the end of them and it's terrifying. <laughs> I know. Just with this context. No. It's so oh good. Oh, you gotta look for him. He's okay. now the spokesperson for that's he's incredible. like talking about happy meals and shit. It's so amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> oh my gosh. Zeke is frantically Googling. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he was phenomenal. I just mm-hmm. pitched perfect. And the use of that weird ass white spiral building they found God knows where for that was like, that was one of the ace things that I just loved, right? Was the, the, let's find the a cool asylum, future right? building. Right? The asylum? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, that's that was a, just brilliant. That's a uh, modern art museum in Atlanta. I figured it was a museum. It's gorgeous. What else would it be, right? So good. I love <laughs> it so much. That was a great idea. Yeah, that was a great idea. Farina was fantastic. You mentioned, Joel, you used to seeing him the way you saw him. Yeah. I saw him for years on Law and Order before oh, I saw him okay. anywhere else. So every time he shows up in something, if he's in any kind of law enforcement role, I just go, oh, okay. And okay. if he's in anything else, <laughs> I go... He can do other things. What? And of course he can. He's amazing, right? And his performances right. are phenomenal. But mm-hmm. like it so here when it was, oh, he's Jack Cup. Perfect. Done. I'm in. <laughs> like I was, I was on board. It was really it was really odd for me to kind of give him the gravitas. Cause I mean, who else has played Jack Crawford? Uh Harvey Keitel played mm. him in Red Dragon. Lawrence Fishburne played him in the Hannibal series. I cannot remember the actor who plays him in Silence of the Lambs, but he's another like you you can see him as this guru, this this kind of gravitas leader of the behavioral science unit. And I'm like, this is the dude that Chili Palmer beats up in fucking Get Shorty. <laughs> like so but he, he plays it great. I I, I, I love that performance. 
I, I, I do want to speak a little bit in the defense of uh, um, uh, Billy Peterson mm-hmm. as yeah, uh, Will Graham. Um, and this is having seen it multiple times. So the, there is there is a little bit of generic white man number one to his face and kind mm-hmm. of how he acts. <laughs> he is a stage actor, which you, you would, there are certain like that really dramatic kind of draping over as he's looking. You kind of see these kind of, it's almost the, the what is it? The uh, uh, German expressionism of the, 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 um, the motion, the, the, the gesture. You stuff that needs that to read you know, all yeah. the way to the back of the, the, the yeah. theater, you know? You kind of yeah. get that. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a little in the face. And I, I kind of, I mean, just my, my uh, sympathy for that character and every inter- interpretation of it. I mean, I love everybody who's played the role. Um, but it's really hard to go from Hugh Dancy in the series, which, uh, Scott, is your most recent experience with it, and that's because of me. Um, mm-hmm. That is a very different portrayal and a very different Will Graham. Mm-hmm. Um, and you haven't seen him go to the place where this Will Graham is in the storyline that you've been watching. Mm-hmm. Um, that's... N- neither here nor there but i mean it's a little context for you going into this performance um but i i kind of see the moods and emotions of the different scenes playing out not necessarily specific to the uh the actor but it is a lot with the uh color of the lighting with the the tone of the music a lot of that kind of influences that. I mean, that that could be me just like yeah, saying no, the rest of the... Right. Because most of that only ever happens when Graham is in a shot. Yeah. A lot of that stylistic atmospheric change. Right. And it, it doesn't... You know, almost every scene involving somebody else, everything is just normal. Yeah. It's just all as it is. Yeah. I'd like but, to think uh, that that's not as a, a crutch to his performance. I think that's part of no, a particular yeah. color Michael Mann was painting with. I with think his it was performance. the point. Yeah, um, but it... It didn't. It didn't quite land. It lands. No, that's that fair. Whole effect for me lands as a something I'm supposed to pay attention to in terms of the setting, as opposed mm-hmm. to in terms of the person in it and what's right. going on in them. Does that make sense? It draws yeah. my attention somewhere else. So, yeah. I think I think kind of the um, uh, the the finale, kind of the 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 pinnacle of that performance, comes together kind of at the end where he he figures out how dollar Hyde knew all mm-hmm. these things. And I mean, that is such a great crystallization of his, yeah, his commentary. His and, like almost yeah. dead stare as Jack Crawford's on the phone. Yeah. Piecing it together. And Jack is like hooking back and forth between Will on the phone and talking. And you know, right. he's got the energy, but the Graham just kind of has this steady. Every time Jack comes back with no labels, different peel it off. Like it's just so the trance is there. Right. And you yeah. can finally see it yeah. like publicly. That's the thing. A lot of his his analysis of Dollar Hyde goes from uh, the suspect, and then it goes you, my man, and then it's mm-hmm. I. That progression of him kind of getting into that mindset, and I don't know if it's an interpretation where he's he's trying to be as deadpan to it as he can to not buy into it. And I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. hard when he comes out of Lecter's office that run that fear that's on his face, that whole, yeah. and that one of, one of the lines is kind of disappointing to me. His delivery of it is the, um, you had certain disadvantages. What did his advantages? You're insane. The way he delivers that kind of, he just like drops it. It's not, there's no bite to it. He's not. And I, uh, it Ed, be defensive, Ed, right? Yeah, Ed Norton kind of plays it a little, little sassier 
I, there's something the the portrayals of those characters in in Red Dragon. Hannibal is a little bit more mustache twirly. There's like there's this really because it's a third film, right? They had Science of the Lambs, won him an Oscar. Hannibal was kind of critically plant, panned. People saw him because they were in, engaged with it, but they were like, let's go back to Hannibal before Science of the Lambs, and that was really the, his opportunity. To, like Brett Ratner was like, just play with it, just just be crazy, and he kind of goes into this different mode. Um, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but like this version of Will is, is gradually getting into the headspace. And the other thing is like, he's playing off and getting into the headspace of Tom Noonan's dollar hide. Mm-hmm. And that character is very measured and even, yeah. And, and almost expressionless. Of- and there's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, it's a little early for him to be getting into that. And in those first couple of scenes where you kind of get that, like, not a whole lot of spatial reaction and th- th- again like uh provide i'm I'm sorry i'm i'm just defending no, no, everything because of <laughs> but I, I think with multiple watches i i kind of appreciated the 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 little things that he was doing with the performance i mean it's uh, hughes dancy's is is amazing he's he's gorgeous first of all that's a very different portrayal of him um in the hannibal series um he might be my favorite, but like I, I think there's definitely a place in in the zeitgeist for this portrayal of Will this way. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Um, all right. Do we want to shift to favorite scenes real quick? Sure. Uh, I think I had the um, the telephone call, but when Hannibal was trying to uh, track down Will's address and just like the mm-hmm. chain of calls, and he's tinkering with the phone, and it's only like a minute and a half but he just tears through everything at like rapid speed and he calls the first operator wrong number tweaks it gets a hold of at&t um you know has to call somebody and then get their secretary and then he's lying about what he's calling for and says a study needs to be sent to will and then gets his work address and then gets his home address and then like the payoff on his face he's just like oh i did that and it's all so quick and it's it, without flinching he just delivers it and just nails it um, and I think that really gives you a glimpse of like what this Hannibal brings to the, the table. Um, you know, and obviously I was doing the same thing. We've talked about comparing Wills and comparing Hannibals and just thinking about, um, I mean, they're both very, I don't know, you can tell in every conversation they're in, they're driving it, you know, they're playing chess while other people are playing checkers, like they're the masterminds. Um, and he, I think this Hannibal feels a little bit more, uh, more brutal, I guess, than, than creepy that, mm. than, that Hopkins brings to the table. Mm. But like, they both have that, like, I can beat you with my mind and here's how I'm going to do it. And he just does it. Um, Ruthless just, efficiency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a relentlessness yeah. to his pace. Yeah. He's a very fast Hannibal. Mm. One of my favorite lines for the Red Dragon portrayal is, as you recall, Will, our last collaboration ended rather messily. There's just this kind of like music... <laughs> to the way Anthony Hopkins delivers a line and it's like measured and he's like, he's sitting back. Mm-hmm. Brian Cox is in your face and he's That's a good way to put it. Up. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. just has no patience for it. He's, he's just a, like he's straight to the point. Uh huh. I also like that, that he like eats the gum once he's done with the rapper. Like I just how casual <laughs> it is like, Oh, I'm going to chew some gum while I'm like, you know, fucking over this guy, you know, it's just like, you know, it's not like, okay, I've got to do this thing, you know, like, like frantically, it's just like, yeah, I know the steps that are going to happen. I'm going to execute them and I'm going to get the information I need. 
you know <laughs> that's the thing <laughs> like nice in that snack for the victory yeah <laughs> in that one scene he comes against so many roadblocks right they mm. call his lawyer he got it to go to the operator i don't have the use of my hands like he'd done it before yeah she's not and, she, and that's me. the thing yeah he called the the front desk and then he got the name of the secretary she wasn't there he pivots so quickly. It's not mm-hmm. that it's not just that he's seven moves ahead, but he's able to shift those seven moves mm-hmm. as he goes along. It's brilliant. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> she gets him with, oh, Martha's not here, and then just on a dime. Maybe you like, can oh, help me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get this to FedEx in five minutes. So let's yeah. let's get this going. I just really love that one. I think that encapsulates a lot of him and a lot of this movie. Um, looking to see, I think. You know, I loved Will um, after their, after his, well, I love that interaction too. Again, like I said earlier, just the first time um, that we see him meet Hannibal and they're sitting in the same room together, divided by the cell only and um, just the, the back and forth, right? Shot. It's a little bit, mm-hmm. yeah. It's Every a little time bit we see different Hannibal, than, the blocking is brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's different than, um, I don't know, but it's different in the same as, as uh, with Clarice, right? Like, mm-hmm. Like I said, he he's kind of in control of the conversation, but like neither Clarice or this will ever really backs down either. It's very, but it's very matter of fact too. And just like, he'll try to say a thing and they'll just kind of shut it down. But then um, I just, the moment when Will leaves and he's just like sprinting through that zigzaggy, yeah. um, you know, down those, the, the ramps, as we said, that was, that was a great scene too. Um, and again, I think very similarly to Silence of the Lambs, just you don't get a lot of Hannibal screen time, right. but when you do, he steals it. And so I think, um, yeah. yeah, just mark me down for any Hannibal scene as a favorite too. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the lines from the book in uh, the internal monologue is uh, as he's leaving the, running out of the uh, hospital, he says, I had the insane impression that Hannibal followed me out. And you get that from the performance. He's so scared. And that's the thing, like he spent all this time trying to get Hannibal out of his head. Um, uh-huh. And he's going back in willingly to get just a little bit. And he, I love that line where it's like, you want the scent back, smell yourself. Uh-huh. Like that, that cheekiness, yeah. that bitchiness to Hannibal is, is, I like that a lot. That's great. Uh-huh. Tim, what Tim? about you? Um, well, we, yeah, I already said I liked the, the, the phone one with the, mm-hmm. the yin and yang. Um, but I also really liked when when they get the the note on the toilet paper mm. and it's like, you know, okay, we have, you know, how long can you keep him busy? And just like how quickly they're like, you know, kind of this, this like scavenger hunt, you know, that they go on where it's like, okay, we've got this and this led to this and this led to this article. Okay. Well, what does that say? Okay. We got to decode it. You know, I guess it kind of spilled over into, um, I think they do get the note back, but once they realize, oh, he's going to send a message in the tattler. Okay. As soon as we get that back and then, okay, I'm looking through the Bible. This doesn't make sense. It's some got to be some other book, you know, like, like that whole, like that montage you know kind of, of of all those chunks of like how they're trying to as quickly as possible against this deadline like kind of outsmart them and get a step ahead of them and kind of all the pieces are there and then when you finally get the reveal of like oh he finally decoded the message like here it is it's like oh shit you know and like kind of culminating with that moment like like that 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 whole thing was brilliant to me like just how how frantic it was you really you know, I feel like with a lot of you know detective stuff, there's this sense of okay, we're gonna we're gonna chase down this lead and we're gonna do this, but there isn't like the same sort of urgency. 
but like with this, there are all these definite times of like, we want the note back in his cell where he left it. So he's not suspicious. So we have this much time to do this. Okay. We got that far, but now, okay. He's going to send a message. Okay. We've got to, but we've got to do this. If we want it to run, we've got to get this done by the time it has to get published. Otherwise we have to run this other thing. And, you know, and just like how, how quickly it had to happen, how it was like, stop everything and get this done and put all your, your energy into this. I thought that was, that was really cool. And like I said, just like, you know, in terms of directing and, and, and writing that it culminated with that message, like this was the message, this was the thing, you know, where it's like, you know, if, um, and I almost wonder too, like, was there a part of, and this kind of just occurred to me because when I'm watching it, it's like, well, wait, like they're down in Florida. This guy's doing his thing. And it was Atlanta, right? Yeah. Atlanta and um, yeah. Chicago. Yeah. So it's like, is, is he going to interrupt his kind of thing to just run down and kill them? And it's like, I almost wonder if that was really like, would have been part of his plan, you know? And it's almost like, Oh, well now it's just become a distraction because now Graham has to deal with putting his family, you know, somewhere safe. But it's like, would, you know, would the red dragon have gone after them regardless, you know? So it's almost like, was that message really to the red dragon or was that message to, to Graham? Was it to kind of throw him off the scent of the other guy and keep him busy and kind of set him off his game, you know, cause he went into there being like, they're not going to know I'm here. And then he shows up in the paper and then it's like, you know, and it's like, I feel like that was part of, what was deteriorating him, you know, the fact that he was going to kind of put his family aside safely in a box and kind of go do this thing. And I'm going to get in the mindset I need to get into. But once his family was like in jeopardy, it was kind of this, this back and forth he had to play. I have to, you know, love my family, but also think like a serial killer at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. So I almost wonder if that was like more Hannibal trying to fuck him over than, you know, expecting red dragon to be like, yeah, he's going to go murder his family. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, or is it like, oh, this cop isn't going to catch me and I have shit to do. I have a whole family I've been like, you know, stalking this whole month. So I need to go after them, you know. It's interesting because he kind of, that allows Will to set the scene for Lowndes' murder. That, that distraction, right? Because mm-hmm. he knows he reads the tattler. He has them write that really scathing profile. Yeah. And the dragon deters not for Will, but for Freddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting kind of what, as a psychiatrist, and it doesn't really go into that too much about what Hannibal's thinking about which buttons he's pushing, but he's pleased with the result either way because Will got Freddie killed. Mm-hmm. And that pleases Hannibal because he's like, you can think like me. You can think like this new one. And you or- orchestrated this guy's murder. So it's this, this really, we're just alike. That's why you caught me. You are the same as me because you can empathize with me. You could reconstruct my fantasies because that's your imagination. So that, that's really interesting. Um, and the procedural stuff, by and large, pretty well researched. Um, mm. Not, I mean, there's, there's updates to the technology. The, the speed, obviously, is, is plot-driven. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Scott has uh, forensic insight I mean, no, I just, I, my best note there is lasers for fingerprints. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I just, that's it. That's the only note. <laughs> I really like that too. Cause it, it was the first kind of, um, in, in the same way diegetic and non-diegetic music works. That was the first kind of 
on-screen justification for the dramatic lighting in the same way kind of like okay when he's in bed with his wife in florida it's this calm cooling beautifully romantic blue it's just this this a wash in this blue and you have the waves in the background it's just gorgeous and every time you see dollar hide you can have these greens and magentas and for the first time when you have them analyzing all of that stuff you have the the source of the light is the laser or they're looking under the microscope and all of those kind of those color cues are coming from things that they're actually doing on screen rather than kind of this other color that they're painting with for the film that's really cool yeah yeah that was good scott what about you favorite Spots. I mean, Lecter's phone call, but otherwise, um, the stain operation that didn't work out with the jogger. It was oh, really yeah. nice to see. Well, that was funny. And <laughs> funny in a like way that felt appropriate for the film, not just a, oh, let's cram some jokes in here, but like in a just, there's only, this is only funny because we're an audience and we're not the guy getting tossed over someone's head, you know, <laughs> in the middle of a parking lot at night and then getting the FBI showing up. Um, but it also was nice to see the FBI working closely and coherently with Will yeah. and competently the whole time, you know, from that was refreshing. There's and no then, asshole detective in this. Like right. there's no like exactly. internal squabbling. Mm-hmm. And there's no like, there's no accidental, there's no dumb local cop who fails right. at something obvious. Yep. There's no, you know, like squabbling over whether Will is competent. Like there's just, we're going to do our job. And then also, not necessarily the scene itself, but I appreciate that Will's family just got moved, and then that was it. We never heard anything else. There was no follow-up. There was no, oh, but he found them miraculously. There was no traitor. Like, no, they just they put <laughs> him in the Tim and I are making eye contact about Red yeah. Dragon. <laughs> Done. So, like, that was great. And then the actual meaty scene, I guess, is um, Will and his son in the grocery store. What a scene. That was I love that scene so much. That was, I like especially since this was one of the first film adaptations. I guess a, I guess complaint, if you will, is that they 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 hint frequently at the history of Will and his history with Lecter and his history before Lecter and all this other stuff, but they never. It doesn't get explained. It doesn't necessarily come into play relevantly, and it doesn't hint at some dark. It didn't. I don't know. It didn't pick up. And maybe this is just because I've seen other things, so I already knew the answers, right? But it didn't entice me to go, ooh, that's mysterious. What are all these things they're alluding to? It just, it was like, it felt half-assed. But we finally got to the scene with his son, and it just went beautifully. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, here's exactly what the deal is with my past and with the whole thing and what I'm doing now. And then for his son to go, okay, what kind of coffee do you like, Dad? Like, that was a brilliant <laughs> moment between them and a brilliant affirmation about Will's internal struggle and like they cleared everything up it took away the mysterious by being vague and just went like here's the drama and every time after that that will struggled felt weightier because it had been clearly explained to us yeah and on top of that seems just great it staged great both the actors that was when i felt most affected by by peterson was that performance right there for that scene and his son was pitch perfect yeah it was great i love that scene for the background of all of the ads, all of the, the items. It's yeah. also like, it's great because you know, you can tell that they 
cut different places because the background, what what's behind will changes without them having moved down the aisle. That's something, <laughs> I don't know if it's just multiple viewings that I caught that, but it's just, it's great to see all those labels. And um, it's also, it, it's interesting, Scott, to see you kind of frustrated that you don't get any of the backstory when they say Garrett Jacob Hobbs' name once in this movie and it's a throwaway, whereas the first season of Hannibal, that's all you see is the is Garrett there? Jacob Hobbs. Oh, right. And that's about all that it's referenced in the book Hmm. of red dragon or any of the books is that one name drop and that's Mm -hmm. it and that maybe that's just because it was so sparse that like i said it didn't feel like some grand mystery about the character to unravel it felt like some annoying thing that i had been dropped in the middle of without knowing about which is why the scene with the sun was so refreshing Mm -hmm. you know to get through that But yeah, and I sorry again. I like I said, my my complaints are very particular, but my general overall was I liked this and it was good. I just can't vocalize that, and so I know this is coming out very negative. No, that's fine. I I think it's a very good movie. I handle the negative comments worse than Tim does. Tim just kind of listens to you. Is like yeah, and I'm like, but this thing I like, (laughs) but but her emails though. (laughs) I do have a real life complaint if you want. Oh. What's the deal with the like pantyhose stocking on the head? <laughs> the hide identity, quote unquote hide. Um, what, does it, it does, what does it do? Like unless you have particularly like sticky outy features and it like smushes you flat, right? You're not gonna get any kind of identity hide. So my from stockings, this, right? Was it like a video camera thing? Is this some out of date thing that I'm too young to know about? I don't get it. I think it comes it's, up everywhere. <laughs> I think in the context of Red Dragon, and this is me speaking from from the dome on this, is like it is a scaly ish material. It creates scales and brushes back his features in a way that pronounces those. M- uh, mandibles that the his false teeth that he puts in i think it's just making him sleeker and dragon like that's that's what i i kind of interpret it as but wow. yeah i don't know how that works i i think it has and to you be know, i for all i know it's a totally a media invention i've never heard of it yeah, in that's life true. either that's I've fair. only ever seen it in countless tv <laughs> shows and movies and things but i've never heard of that actually happening speaking of that that scene that reveal uh, uh tim you were talking about the um philip seymour hoffman stuck to the chair um, one of the things that I really like about this version of that is that there's the maxi pad across his eyes. Yeah. That's in the book. And I love it so much. That little detail. I just, that's the only thing that puts this version of that above <laughs> the red dragon one, because that little detail, I would have liked the, the naked sticking thing that does make it a lot more vulnerable. Um, yeah. but that scene is, is impeccable. I, I love that scene. Um, I love the use of your imagination as the viewer because he shows you, that's the thing, Michael Mann is showing you this, the slideshow and it's happy family, happy family, happy fla- family. Then you see Lowndes looking yeah. at it. And here's how they See them after. changing. Here's their changing. Do you yeah. see? Do you see? Do you see see. hammering home that visual aspect? And it's all happening off screen. Mm -hmm. This movie is in its restraint. That was brilliant. Show you any of the the violence until that last sequence. You don't, what, and this is, this is kind of 
sloppily connecting to my favorite scenes is like one of my favorites is when will is coming through the first house and he's talking about it and he's recording you he enters the room and you see him and he's talking about it and then it turns over his shoulder and it's this bloody mess it's terrifying and all it's terrifying for is you're imagining what happened you don't see any of that take place mm. it's just your imagination running wild with this aftermath and that's what will is doing you're both recreating that moment in your head it, it, it povs so well with those sequences um Another one of my favorite shots is uh, the opening on Will and Jack on that piece of driftwood. It's just a, this, Michael Mann nails the two shot better than anybody in the business. That he just allowed that, um, the balance of that camera is, is stationary. It does not move. You see them, they're on either sides of the driftwood. And then he plays, like he, he lingers on it and they're both facing other ways. It has a little bit of a stalkerish in uh, the, the movie stalker the, that energy where they're not meeting mm-hmm. each other's eye line and it, it tells you so much about their dynamic like will is looking a different direction he's facing forward and having to look back at jack and he's looking off into this ocean this this sea of tranquility pu- pardon the pun like that you you understand so much about their dynamic visually from that first shot and then he cuts back and forth and he puts the, the photo between them on the, the driftwood. It just characterizes it so well, so quickly. And the two shot of him and Molly kind of looking mm-hmm. out over the sea, that's a brilliant shot. Um, I'm trying to think what else. And I mean, my, there's um, the, the, one of the most kind of cognitive, weird, dissonant music moments is one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is the strong as I am song where dollar Hyde has come up to pick Reba up and misinterprets this, this uh, uh, touch getting fluff off of her face as this intimate moment. And that song. So it, it charges and it's like, it's odd. Cause you hear the kind of the, the um, native American flute and you you're, instantly transported to like walmart in 1994 you hear like that that one cd and you're like um but it's this great moment where the 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 song kind of swells and you kind of hear it turn into this pop music and you've heard the cue before after the sex scene you have that kind of pop music come in but the crescendo into the strong as i am chorus is like such a characterization of dollar hide francis is gone francis has gone away and this, and that's the thing, like it so characterizes the vulnerability Francis was showing to Reba and how it shifted this little moment, this perception, this thing he thought he saw, which is his whole character. I mean, that's what Will says, is that he's all visual. It's what you see. It's your primary mode of input. That's yeah. not quite how he says it, but that moment is just so, the crescendo of it hits so hard and it's a great fucking song. Like it's, I mean, the, the opening line is, uh, uh, well, not, there's something in this thing that scares me. Like, that's the, the pre-chorus line. And it so perfectly characterizes, like, Dollar Hyde is strong. He's, he's demonstrated that. He's massacred these people. He's in, imposed his will. And he's made himself vulnerable because he thinks he's found his, his woman draped in the sun, like, from that painting, the Blake painting. 
and mm-hmm. strong as he is, he makes himself vulnerable and is disappointed by what he thinks he sees. And it totally shifts that character back. In, you have that humanity for him. I don't know. You have a little bit of sympathy. There's not as much of backstory in, in this version as in Red Dragon, um, the, the book or the movie. Um, but I think that works to his, because Noonan is such a different kind of dollar hide than mm-hmm. um, the people, the other, I mean, Ray Fiennes is the other person who played him. And then, uh, um, oh, I can't remember his name, Thorin Oakenshield from The Hobbit is the other guy who <laughs> plays him in the, the Hannibal series. Um, but yeah, it was just really, I love that moment because it's this vicious crescendo into this pop song that it's very 80s and more 80s probably than anything else in the film. And it feels strange. And then it just realizes and it, it all kind of comes together in that moment, which is really cool. I, I really liked his mirror punch. Yeah. I, like, I don't, it's weird to say, but it was just so satisfying and perfect in this exactly like, this is what I wish it was like in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, just boop, and it poosh, like shattered very satisfyingly in a way that was like not a danger to your knuckles, but also cool. And like it was that pitch perfect, just this is what fantasy mirror destruction is like, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was just really satisfying. And then it, it, it brought my mind back to the crime scene we saw with Will. Yeah. You know, and those mirrored surfaces that we saw there. That's another favorite scene of mine is the um, when he's finally reconstructed the fantasy and you see the, the mom with the eyes and the, the mouth filled with mirrors and light reflecting light through them mm-hmm. is just such a great, cause you don't really, you're left to your own Im- imagination, imaginative devices, the whole film, you kind of imagine this fantasy the way Will is, and then you see it kind of visually. And it's, it's really stark and really terrifying. And, and I mean, in, in an 80s way, right? Because it's, it's not the best of effects, but it's kind of eerie for its lack of CGI, you know? Well, we're in that section of the movie. Um, and sorry, I could keep comparing to <laughs> Silence of the Lambs, and that's oh. all I got. But um, I felt like the um, Buffalo Bill and Catherine, when he's got the night vision goggles and turns all the lights yeah. off and he's kind of stalk, stalking her in that way and like reaching out and touching her was a very um, close parallel to this one with uh, Reba. Reba and, you know, but she's blind. Yeah. And like, he just walks up to her, touches her face and he's yeah. kind of blasts the music and is like uh, a different type of cat and mouse game, right? Then we get the whole movie. But that's kind of what my brain jumped back to there. Um, again, just thinking of this as like an earth, you know, alternate universe sort of movie where, um, there are so many similarities that are just a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was almost as terrifying as, because we get to see it, right? In, in Silence of the Lambs, it's dark for us too, or, you know, we're seeing through the night vision goggles first person. Um, but this one was terrifying in, in you know, broad apartment light, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, just thinking about what she's going through and how she's experiencing it. So, yeah, that was a, another scene that stuck out to me. Yeah, that's that's a great parallel. I I never made that connection before, and that's it's such a terrifying. Yeah. I mean, Reba is such a a empathetic character. I mean, she doesn't know yeah. at all what Dollar Hyde is, and she yeah. sees this good this potential in him. I mean, it, it's and and that's 
this is a great portrayal of that. And I mean, there's a little bit, it kind of delves deeper in the book and kind of that, mm-hmm. that relationship, but you still get kind of the integrity of what she sees in him for not seeing him and right. what he sees as a possibility for, cause it is, is one of his, his, I mean, he destroys the mirrors cause he doesn't like the way he looks. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he wants to feel desired and he thinks that there's a visual block for that. So to have somebody who doesn't, even register that as a thing mm-hmm. right and yeah. that cross the crossed wires is heartbreaking on you know too right because like you said you do get that feel of empathy for him for misunderstanding that and thinking he lost her and then at the same time right he he just goes full-blown and goes in there and traps her and, and then you feel bad for her for not knowing that he saw what he thought he saw it's just yeah it's 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 rough because she's one of the nicest characters and just double heartbreak there at the end and our um the actress there joan allen according to wikipedia Mm -hmm. like i was wondering if she was really blind she yeah she she actually went to one of the um uh blind academies in new york and had an acting coach Uh. and had, had done some that, really yeah. specific movement work. That was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It really, I, as little, as few interactions I've had with, with blind people in real life, that looked really convincing mm-hmm. and, you know, made sense. When she finds her way to the corner <laughs> is just so terrifying and so vulnerable in that moment. And it's like, it's also like what Zeke was saying, it's like the cacophony of the music and just wanting some kind of sign that Francis is there. Like that's who she knows, right? Like she's calling out for him and he comes and he touches her in that very dismissive, there's a power to it. And that's the thing you, since we're seeing it in a way that like Buffalo Bill, it's his POV and you hear him breathing and it's this, this pursuit, this stock, the visual element that you kind of see that there's a little, there, there's this conflict in dollar high still. Um, I mean, when he, he, he's on top of her on the kitchen table and he's going to slash her and he sees himself reflected in the, the, the mirror shard and he, he, he slumps. He has this visual slump that's, that's indicative of like, she already, I thought she already saw me as this powerful, desirable person mm-hmm. and it's just not going to work. And then Will comes through that, the glass in, in such a great... It, it's that last sequence initially my impression of it is like it's very choppy and it it seems unfinished and it seems sloppily put together um having recently watched an interview with the cinematographer um dante spinotti spinotti yeah spinotti um who's amazing and worked on heat and uh just one of the great visual like he he has a lot of to do with the lighting and the kind of visual language of the film um he was talking about the way michael shot that last sequence was different camera angles really jumping takes different uh uh shutter speeds i don't think that's the right word um what did i say frame rates frame rates so each one of those shots from different angles are different frame rates so it had it's a very deliberate choice Mm. Very kind of auteur and very deliberate, but it kind of doesn't really mesh with the rest of the film visually. Um, and I, I watched a video essay that was talking about that 
that last sequence kind of being indicative of um, there's a lot of like mirrors and reflections and kind of this idea that Will is looking through the mirror to Dollar Hide on this other side. And the fact that that, that signal, that punch to the, the mirror before that sequence starts is kind of representing this kind of fractured um, um, uh, collision of these two sides of the mirror. And mm-hmm. the visual language of that last sequence where it's jumping frame rates and it's very unsettling and it's not as smooth is indicative of those two forces meeting and things going wrong because they're not supposed to be in the same place. And somebody has to, it's that yin and yang coming together destructively and one has to win out. Um, that's that's uh, counterintuitive to the yin yang principle where it's balanced, everything has to be balanced for one to claim victory over the other is not in balance, but yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting, and that's the thing. Like it, it's it's not a perfect film for that last sequence. I like the the narrative. I like the logic of it being disjointed, as indicative of that. But I didn't I didn't do that work. I wasn't able to identify that within the film. So I, I don't know how well it fits the intention. If it's I mean I'm not all that enlightened a moviegoer, but I, I feel like that's it's not readily apparent that that's deliberate it, it seems like a mistake and i don't know if that's just uh, modern sensibility again in quotation marks but like it, it just seemed it seemed choppy and something that you would smooth over going with the other visual language of the film i thought that too i um if we were going to do least favorite scenes i had that ready to go for that just because it kind of was distracting to me and, and it felt mm. like you said almost like a mistake i was like i had to double take a little bit i was like did it just jump there is like that a, a streaming issue or, or right. and then I watched you know as it went on and saw that it kept shifting or jumping or like you said the frame rates were different I was like oh, okay had some slow-mo mixed in I, yeah I just didn't um but but I'd love to watch it again with that in mind and then to watch that discussion that you were talking about see if that changes it but for sure I think first viewing for me that was uh yeah didn't, didn't like it quite as much Mm-hmm. Also, I, I, questionable police work of this one is jumping face first through glass and then also getting <laughs> yeah. stabbed in the face. Yeah. Like, come oh, on, man. man. Like, be it's a like little more stealthy. Gun. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Pop him from the outside. Like, get the energy. I get one and go in there, but then he just gets stabbed in the face. Like, don't. don't that is the, the Jake face. Peralta energy in this film. <laughs> that is such a leap first, <laughs> ask questions later kind right. of move. It's spectacular and it, it mirrors the. the uh, mirrors the mirror pun mm-hmm. um the mirror sla- smashing and it's really cool i was actually i watched all of this kind of like other stuff where they were talking about tom noonan had talked to um, um michael mann about michael's like what what do you need to get there how, how can we make this this filming work for you and tom is like it would be great if i didn't have to see people i wasn't working or uh, I'm working with in scenes until the day we shoot. So they put him on different planes. They ushered other people away from their asides until, so the first time Tom Noonan saw Billy Peterson as Will Graham was when he came through that glass window. Mm. So that, that interaction of them, him catching him and holding him, it's the first time that they had met face to face in the whole production that's great. And it's a great like life imitating art type thing by design. 
but it was just so cool. And I mean, like, Tom is a scary looking dude. He can be for sure. He's tall and he's lanky and he's got this kind of alien quality to him, just his proportions. And I mean, he, he, he hated that about himself as an actor, but he, he used it to great effect in his work. I think Tom Noonan actually plays one of the investigators or a local cop in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah. Huh. There's also another uh, parallel between Silence of the Lambs, the, uh, the um, detective that they call to verify the um, um, driver's licenses plays Barry from or barney from science of the lamps he's the guy who guides clarice to hannibal lecter's cell that orderly yeah oh okay yeah and he comes back in hannibal yeah nice yeah there's a john ratzenberger of the of the hannibal (laughs) and also uh dante spinotti again he served as uh head of photography for the red dragon movie so he has his his kind of visual foot in both of the interpretations on film which is really cool that's awesome um what did you guys think of the the lighting in this film because i'm in love with it It, it's so pulp i i keep thinking of francesco francovia who's one of my favorite comic book artists he has this very pop almost i i I kind of align it to the the um italian horror genre giallo um kind of the uh mario bava and um uh uh, director of Inferno and the one with the witches. I can't remember his name. Dargento, Dario Dargento. This kind of really pastel, unnatural lighting kind of bleeding into this, this American detective story. It's, it's, it's a horror film, a thriller film, but it has... It, it just it's very striking it's something about like heat you i always remember the the exchange between uh um de niro and pacino from that the dialogue that's something michael mann wrote mm-hmm. um i don't really think of I, there's a certain sensibility for the visuals in that film but i don't think of it as strongly as i do this one like this is very color forward what mm-hmm. did you guys think about that it felt very blade runner <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah I, I mentioned like, sonically like as well yeah the things about the 80s that i like and the things that i don't right one of the things that i like was that whole bleeding neon a wash that just you know drenches everything and and can can turn the landscape that you're whatever you're looking at into a still image or the faded edges of a dream through which you're drifting depending on how you're looking at it and whether you're moving or sitting still and that is something that usually comes out in in you know, sci-fi, cyberpunk type stuff, but it worked really well here. Um, although, like I said, I didn't at the time make the connection to like it being representative of Will's mental state so much as I just saw it as another cool ladies thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll jump on board with being in love with it too. I just <laughs> like the look of it. So add me to the list. <laughs> it, it, uh, it reminded me a little bit of... Um, Maybe not necessarily when I was watching it, but now that I'm thinking about it, um, I, a while ago I finally watched season one of Twin Peaks. And I don't know if it just has to do with it being, I think Tw- Twin Peaks was the 80s, I think. Um, you know, that, that you know, and, and it's a, a similar thing, you know, a cop doing this investigation, like, okay, someone was killed, who did it? Um, 
but but yeah like it it i i was definitely noticing that like when things are dark you you can see that they're actually dark and grainy whereas i almost feel like nowadays like if something's supposed to be dark it's like well we're going to film it with light and then we'll color correct it to make it look dark but everything will still be crystal clear even though there's no light in the scene whereas with this like you really got that impression of like oh yeah there's no light that's why like i can barely make out what i'm seeing and, um so that's another thing Michael Mann is not afraid of shadow. Like so many of these things are very poorly lit. And that's such a weird thing to say because light plays such a big part. But shadow is such a huge component. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned heat because I think of heat as this like solidly gray and urban and blocky concrete aesthetic. Just as being representative of the film entirely, but I don't always think of that as a conscious choice so much as I think of it as a consequence of mid '90s Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But you've got me pondering now if I should go back and re-examine that. Yeah, I need to watch Heat again. I feel like it's one of those things where you think of the climax of the film as that interaction between Push. Pacino and De Niro mm -hmm. but it comes like within 45 minutes of a two-hour movie so it's like there's so much of the movie left yeah so you like you kind of feel like you, you're boning up for that and then it, it's it's over and it's like oh now we have to go there's a parking lot shooting scene and De Niro beats up this guy's wife or something <laughs> like man really yeah, loves so to much take his time there um you know, and just not, not, which I've mentioned before that I appreciate directors like Tarantino who will let a scene be silent and still, mm -hmm. right, as a part of the interaction between the characters. And I feel sort of like Michael Mann was doing something similar with Heat, but not quite as, it wasn't woven quite as naturally into the, the ups and downs of the film, if that makes sense. But that he definitely, like, appreciated the whole start to finish of a different interactions mm -hmm. even if the notes were down mm -hmm. and it doesn't always like the film's pacing was a little more erratic but i i think i always felt like he was going for something similar that, you know yeah. to really deliver the salient parts but the whole package mm -hmm. of each conversation and each scene and each group meeting and everything. Yeah, it's interesting uh the kind of production history of this and heat is that he had had heat written and ready to go and was searching for a buyer and it was tied up for a while and he went and did this while he was waiting for heat to get sold. So this was like a, uh, what was it? A six or seven week shoot. Like it was very quick and uh, they did, especially that, that final sequence, that was all one day's worth of shooting. They, I mean, that was a 24, 28 hour day that they were on set getting all, they did it in real time. They tried to, to get it in, uh, um, also um, cr chronologically they shot it in sequence so that whole it's just a testament to like this this vision and this the speed of it and it's it's odd for something that was put together so quickly like filmed so quickly to have those moments of breath and kind of letting just two characters sit in a two shot and just the 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 whole the framing device and the the, the composition of the scene and forming those performances is just incredible i mean this this is a feat in editing i mean mm -hmm. a question for uh for you guys that have especially you know you guys that have seen hannibal um or, or rather seen some of the other source material 
Um, to, to me, from just this and then just what I have seen of Hannibal, it felt like, uh, you know, this could be essentially a movie version of Hannibal or Hannibal could be the TV version of this movie. Um, so just in terms of pacing and, and what else there is to cover, do you, I mean, how do you feel, like, how would you compare the two in terms of, you know, what did this one cover? What didn't it? That sort of thing. I know Hannibal draws for more than, you know, than this does, but I'm just curious. Scott, did you have any thoughts on that? I don't want to be the only one to speak about this. You've seen two <laughs> seasons of it. I, so the wheelchair was shows up <laughs> in the show and in the parking garage and hearing the squeak and turned around to the ramp. And I was like, oh, is this going to be the wheelchair? It was a nice little Easter egg, you could say, that I know was a Red Dragon specific thing. So she draws on bits and pieces, apparently, from all over the Hannibal mythos to re- reorder the the order they happen in and make the show. So finding mm. out something get mentioned in this was like a neat little, oh, okay, like this is a Red Dragon-esque thing. Like, that was neat. Gotcha. But, um, okay. I am not as involved as Joel is, you know? So, so by the time we get to the, the Red Dragon proper storyline in the series, it's the latter half of season three, um, and I was, I, I was re-watching that kind of the start of that today, just kind of priming it. Um, by that time, Brian Fuller as the showrunner and the writer is so, and I, I say this as much with love as I can, up his own ass that it, it's almost a foregone conclusion that he assumes you know the story of Red Dragon. And I think for the most part, his audience does because we love this show. And I feel like there was enough time and enough uncertainty and enough lifted specifically from the novels that we all went out at least after the first or second season finales and read and devoured every other version of these stories. And that's kind of how he he, he has this confidence. And I don't think it's an arrogance. I think it's definitely a confidence, but it is up his own ass because I mean, that's (laughs) Brian is great at that. Like he, his, he takes the, the kind of purple bloated dialogue that Thomas Harris wrote and he lifts it from different places and he peppers it in the first and second seasons. It, it's an elevated place. It's already kind of highfalutin and kind of snobbish, the language mm-hmm. and stuff. And it's, it's flowery and gorgeous. And it's kind of what I, what I love about it is the writing of them. Mm-hmm. The kind of portrayal of these vicious things is beautiful. And this, this kind of uh, focus on transformation. But by the time you get to, I mean, there's four, four or six episodes devoted to the telling of this story in okay. the series. Um, and he plays homage to kind of what he set in motion. And he kind of, he, he's used a lot of the elements of uh, the Red Dragon stories as kind of Easter eggs in the first two seasons. So when he, by the time he gets to that, he's filling a lot of the blanks and he's filling things with things he's invented. Um, and kind of the d- dynamic between Will and Hannibal, which drives the whole show, is a lot more, I, I want to say, explicitly sexual. But they, they, it's very apparent that these two love each other mm-hmm. and want to kill people together, um, <laughs> despite the moralistic <laughs> qualms Will might have had about killing people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a really, it's it's such a different story by the time fuller is telling it okay i i think it th- this is a great 
I don't know. Like it's really hard to kind of pick a favorite version of it. And I know that's not your question, but um, every single one of them has a very specific language. I love this version of Will Graham, but I think the Hannibal mm. series one is my favorite. I really like Anthony Hopkins's Hannibal, but Mads Mikkelsen is insane and so good. Yeah, there was a little bit of Brian Cox in Mads Mikkelsen in the that efficiency of like once he settled on a plan, a thing mm-hmm. to do, he just carries yeah. it out like mm. a machine doing the programming. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the the way the phone's saying right, the way he just. Uh-huh carried on from a to b in this swift snappy bing 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 but pivoted smoothly like we get that in mads mickelson too and it's really nice that's the thing like ray finds his dollar hide we get to see a lot more of him in the red dragon movie mm. and that characterization is is really sympathetic I, I we see a lot more of what made that man a monster mm. and ray finds carries it off beautifully i think it, it's i Picking between them and like pacing wise, I feel like this is the snappiest one of them. Um, but it's 80s. If you want kind of more of what the book tells you, the Red Dragon movie is is pretty close to that. Mm-hmm. If you want something bloated and uh, elevated and up its own ass, you want the series. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then, uh, you know, I know this isn't book mumble, but would you, would you recommend the book? I mean, oh, the absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I do want to yes, give those yes. a read. Okay. Um, if you need to borrow them, I have them. Um, okay. Deal. Yeah, got, some, got some catching up to do. Yeah. It, it's really interesting to see kind of how, how different things make it verbatim into things and so, mm-hmm. certain things don't. And kind of, mm-hmm. that's a, I mean, did you guys notice Hannibal's not a cannibal in this movie? I, I mean, it wasn't mentioned. I wasn't sure. I, cause you know, it didn't come up, right. It wasn't relevant, <laughs> Yeah. but yeah, they didn't like throw it in your face, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. bring it up in the discussion. They sort of left the past in the past for the most part, Yeah. except for will and his own struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this is the most uh, likable Frederick Chilton across all of the versions <laughs> because you uh-huh. see him for two seconds and he's competent and not slimy. <laughs> That goes a long way yeah. <laughs> in, in this, yeah, in that character. Yeah. Did you guys, I, I wanted to ask, I, I talked a lot about the music, but I didn't ask any opinions from anybody else. I just kind of macheted my, my own opinion through. Um, what did you guys think of the use of the pop songs? Does it, was that unset, weird or seem out of place? For me, that fell into the, it's very of the time for better and for worse. Okay. Yeah. 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 I feel like it's it's very rare to to have a film with with pop song usage that's actually supposed to fit the film, not just like, hey, I'm going to pay you to put my song in your film, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't fit. You know, like I feel like that's the way usage works more now. A lot of the time, you know, it's more of a marketing thing, and it's a way of like, oh, if we can say we've put this song in this film, we can use this song to kind of drum up business for the film so people will go see it and get people pumped to go see it, you know? And um, so, yeah, like to me, I feel like a lot of times pop songs just stand out because they're pop songs, unless they're being used in a, um, again, I forget which one is the difference between diegetic and non-diegetic, but, um, you know, where if it's like, yeah, they're listening to a radio. Okay. Of course there's a pop song there, you know? Um, 
but yeah, it's, 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 it's become a very odd experience for me to have pop music as part of like a, a, like underscore, you know? Um, so, but I think that might just be me. Um, or it could just be, you know, again, like with, with eighties music in general, because it's so like eighties and, and dated, you know, it's like, I, I do feel like there were times when I was watching this where I wasn't as aware that it was made in the eighties. And then when the pop songs would come in, it was like, Oh, this is the eighties, you know, as opposed to a movie like, you know, like with, uh, um, um, you know, chopping mall, like every second of that, you're like, yeah, this is the eighties. So like when you hear a pop song, it fits because it's like, yeah, this is, this is dripping in eighties. Um, you know, for me, and again, maybe part of it's also because like I grew up in the eighties. So it's kind of just like, there's, there's, uh, a comfort to the nostalgia it's not you know something that uh you know like when when people when that 70s show was big and i would watch that and it was kind of this awareness like oh this is what things were like in the 70s so people who lived during that time are going to look at this and go oh yeah i remember that you know it was this more of a, a an awareness whereas with you know watching stuff from the 80s it's just you know it's it's a, a it's, it's like a smell you know it brings you back to that time more organically um, so it kind of did that to me. Um, but also I didn't know any of the pop songs that were used. So what, I mean, except for like, you know, in the scoring, the comfortably numb thing, but then that had a different effect because like, I was like figuring out what it was, you know? So it's like, yeah, the, the, the music in this a lot of the time was very weird and very, uh, you know, there was sort of some of the bass synth, you know, like, which I did think of Scott though with the whole Blade Runner thing where some of it did remind me of that. And I was like, oh yeah, there's, here's this kind of like, you know, world, which was, was kind of weird because it's like with Blade Runner, it's like this futuristic world. So it fit, whereas this is like, oh no, it doesn't fit the world other than it takes place in the eighties. So it's just, it's so weird how like a lot of different sounds kind of work that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, like it, for the most part, it was it was jarring for one reason or another. There were very few times where there would be kind of spooky music, which I was like noticing it more vaguely that it was creating the right mood. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed a lot of the music that I didn't notice as much. <laughs> but yeah, the pop songs were just awkward. But again, like you forgive that because it's like, well, it's the 80s. They're, they're, you know, it's like there were only a handful of good pop songs that I feel like stand the test of time from the eighties. So it's like, unless you're picking those, of course it's going to sound weird and garbage, but that's just me. <laughs> little, little judgy there. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Here's, here's, I, I want to give another explanation too, is like, there's a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who, you know, all throughout college, like, you know, he'd be like, Oh, you know, I love eighties music and this and that. And I was like, yeah, me too. And I kept, I kept being like, I love eighties music. And then he would reference all these things. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that song is. And I'd hear it. I'd be like, this song is fucking stupid. Why do I think I like 80s music? <laughs> and it's because my, 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 you know, the, the core of my introduction to Rush was their early 80s stuff, which is some uh. of their best stuff, not all of their best stuff, but like, <laughs> like moving pictures and, and permanent waves. Like that was all early, early 80s. So in my mind, that's what I think of when I think 80s music. And, and there's, there's sense there, but they're still being used in a taste, tasteful light. Now, when we move to mid to late 80s rush music where it becomes very synth heavy you know it, then it's kind of like oh okay this is why everyone hates synthesizers i get it now <laughs> i was so lamenting that you don't make custom themes anymore listening to this again like watching this <laughs> like i 
desperately wanted <laughs> your I probably would have just taken the Blade Runner version right. and then just sort of tweaked it because it was just like so, you know. <laughs> Very referential. Yeah. What about or it would have just been, you know, the baseline to comfortably numb the whole time with the <laughs> melody on top. Yeah. yeah, I think I was on the, uh, you know, feeling awkward with it. I, I want to say, and I, I'm probably wrong, but I feel like there was a very long stretch at the beginning of the movie where it was more scory and then yeah. like kind of deep in you kind of get the first pop song with lyrics and I was like what, what the hell where'd that come from um it felt like I don't know maybe like 45 minutes in when that happened I'm not sure but no, that kind of threw me yeah. off yeah it's and late. then like the use of it but it was interesting to hear you talk about it and kind of like you get the poppier ones um you know with in in Dollar Hyde's relationship with Reba and kind of what that signifies um so I don't know. I, yeah, I think mostly awkward, but with some upside. Um, I'm definitely ready to, to get into the Inagata de Vida uh, discussion because I think that was a good use of that. Uh, I've got the, the another place I've seen it that really stuck out to me was um, Home Improvement. <laughs> so you just get another Tim Allen tie in here. I think there was a, I think it was a Halloween episode and they're like going through the haunted house and that's like blasting. Maybe oh, that's pulled from Manhunter. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Per Wikipedia, you know, we've got it in a Simpsons episode. We've got it in Ocean's 12, um, Rob Zombie's 3 from Hell. Like, it gets used a lot. But I think this is, this is a very solid use of Inagata de Vida. So I am here for that. It's a single that is the whole of one side of a 33 record, right? Like, it, it's 14 <laughs> fucking minutes long or something like that. It's, right. The version <laughs> I've got here is 17 minutes. Yeah, it, it's it's insane. I, I remember it was like a behind the music or something, and they're like, they brought us this, and they said, this is the single. They're like, how much have you smoked? And what are you saying? And then they kind of investigated it like in the same like satanic kind of imagery as they did Led Zeppelin. But they didn't say what Jimmy Page said is like, have you seen ACDC? Why the fuck are you talking to us? This is nerd shit. Um, it's a great song, but it's it's very long, and I I like its use in here. Like you were saying, Tim, they chop it up and they put it in the right places to kind of make it pop. Yeah. But it's one of those things. Like I hear it initially, and I laugh every time because it's like, oh, of course, this is the song. This that song kind of takes me out of it more than anything. And then the, uh, that's the thing. Like I feel like a lot of the pop music initially, there's this weirdness. Like I, with that pan flute so- sound, it's like this is why is this in here? And then I think it kind of realizes either like halfway through the song or towards the end of the song that you'd like, okay, there was a deliberate usage here, but it, it's, that, that's, that is a, a famously overused song. <laughs> there was something about that song that always felt like, it always felt sort of like the doors, but if they'd been doing different drugs. <laughs> i don't know that iron butterfly did much more i i i think this is the only song i've ever heard of theirs um yeah it's very i think strange. i had that that cassette as a kid and mm-hmm. the b-side is terrible like, <laughs> okay. i remember it's it's just kind of like you know you get all pumped for this this like this this journey and then they're just like songs on the other side and you're like oh okay this for is, some reason i thought it was uh cream eric clapton's first band who did it not mm. iron butterfly so i was like oh i should go back and listen mm. to cream is it's definitely not them um, <laughs> they also have a, I, I think i just uh, equated their song strange brew for indigata de vida which is an interesting oh, okay yeah 
very similar like spookiness to it and kind of similar yeah. bass lines but yeah. so it's another one of those songs where it's like that's the first thing thing you learn on bass or guitar same way like smoke on the water it's yeah. just a very recognizable yeah. uh really easy oh, yeah. lick to play I'm having flashbacks to like every time I had a beginning guitar student come in and be like, look what I can play. Like, get, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Not even doing it in the right key because you want to use the open string. Like, fuck off. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's an achievement. It's the first mm-hmm. achievement. <laughs> you got to unlock that before you get the big combo. It's, it's like the, it's the twinkle, twinkle little star of rock, <laughs> rock and roll. Well, the reason yeah. it was one of the first songs in the first section of the original uh, Guitar Hero. Right. <laughs> right it was up there so scott real quick i want to do a watch check with you oh man can you tell what will's fucking watch was because i am obsessed and nobody can oh, tell me it's no. a black jubilee diver with a white face no i don't think i even noticed what he was wearing except to note that it was on a jubilee i yeah. did notice that noonan had a pretty nice looking casio yes he did i like that watch a lot yeah. too and those glasses, fashion in this, uh, let, me, let me just, I love the fashion in this. As awkward and weird as it is, the jewel tones that Will Graham wears with the ties and the black, that, whatever that jacket is, it's like this patchwork, black and white kind of weird, looks like animal skin, but it's not. It, it's so 80s and I love it so much. And then those pink shorts that he wears, on the boat in oh, the yeah. dream sequence, I was like, yeah. I need those shorts. Those those are some shorts right there. <laughs> I, I did enjoy his his shirt and tie combos. I will say mm-hmm. that they I could see I could see myself wearing some of those. Yeah, those like fabric ties of the yes. age. Like mm-hmm. I totally get the why knitted those ties. Back. Yeah, exactly yeah. the knitted tie. I'm not sure I'd wear one myself, but I absolutely get like I look at that and go, that's beautiful. Like that's a look, and I'm glad people still mm-hmm. do it. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't tell what the watch was, but I, every time I saw it, it's like, I, I really want it. It looks like an SKX, but it's it's not, I don't know. Yeah, it's not, it's right. not quite yeah. clear Just enough in any style anyway. Yeah. Well, anyone knows, you know. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that would be a great fan catch. Oh, I wanted to talk about kind of this structure as a, um, as a cop story. Essentially, it's the called back into the field, right, for one last hurrah type thing. But he's not a loose cannon. He didn't leave the force. It's not a Rambo situation. Mm-hmm. He's being bought, brought back because of his imagination. And it's, like, separate from, like, the, the, the Hannibal Lecter mythos and the whole baggage that comes with that, like, just at its core, the idea that this story is about a family man who had a traumatic experience. He caught his man. And his, he's moved on, and right. he's found a healthy way to interact, and he's happy, and is compelled to come back in because he's the best at it. But it's he's not the best at pulling the trigger; he's the best at finding the guy with his imagination. And I think that's something that's so compelling about this story. That's why I'm willing to watch it so many times. Is that that's at its core? Is that it, it's the power of imagination and empathy instead of this is the dude that kicks in the doors and breaks the rules and knows the seedy underbelly. You know, this is, this is an atypical eighties action cop, you know, I don't know what you guys thought about that or if, if that had entered 
I was in it for the guy who thought if he, he might turn into the devil. That was, that was my, <laughs> that's always been, you know, that's why I like, it's like, I could see why there are two versions or, you know, now three versions of this story, because that to me was the more compelling villain. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, I feel like, you know, to me, I, I view the you know, same thing with silence of the lambs. Like, I mean, yes, it's like, you know, you have the the protagonist for a reason, but it's like, are you are you watching Silent uh, Silence of the Lambs for for Clarice, or you're watching it for Buffalo Bill? You know, and and I don't know, I could go either way, but for this one, like, I'm definitely watching it for the Red Dragon, like, you know, like, you know, and I don't know if that's part of the point where, like, you know, to kind of almost get to cheer him on, where it's like, are we are we gonna, you know, what? if he kills one more family is he going to become this supernatural no oh no never mind you know like you know and is that kind of i don't know that that to me is what is what's more intriguing about this story so it's but but yeah like it's it's an interesting thing to bring up that like it's not a cop who you're kind of like yeah you know, oh damn it jim you know you're you're a violent son of a bitch but you get the job done you know which i feel <laughs> like is the the trope you know and it's like so yeah maybe that's yeah, maybe I should pay more attention to the hero. <laughs> the way I was thinking about it, um, again, in last Silence of the Lambs comparison, but I was feeling like uh, Will Graham here is like world's greatest detective Batman, and then Clarice is like vigilante, you know, hunting villains down Batman. My approach to the protagonist, but like year one, where he falls and hurts himself, like she gets <laughs> trapped in the the uh, garage and stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that analysis. Yeah, yeah. It's such an interesting. Dy- I mean, Hopkins is Hannibal has strange attachments and weird interactions with the people who come to see him, and part of what carries you through two films of him and Clarice, even though they recast Clarice is Mm -hmm. the intimacy of that relationship and the interesting nature of that. Cause Clarice is this very specific kind of investigator who doesn't seem to, it wouldn't gel well with this violent person but that their kind of bond and their affection for each other and respect for one another is, is a hugely compelling part of that story. Whereas with Will Graham in this, and I mean, there, there's very stark contrast and very strict lines drawn between Hannibal and Will in this. And it, it's, it's very stark in contrast. Like you're not, you're not watching this for their relationship. You, you really like when they butt heads and you like their interactions but it, it's not quite the the companionship that you get from Clarice and Hannibal. Yeah. There's a more, I mean, yeah, butting heads is exactly the term, right? Just a more rougher sort of reluctance is too, too weak a term, honestly, like displeasure at their relationship. Mm-hmm. Like there isn't even any part of Will that seems happy about it. Right. Like even the part of him that knows he can use it to catch other killers is like, well, man, this sucks. Like <laughs> I'm cursed with this, you know, it doesn't feel like, like with Clarice's, there was that little tone of like, Ooh, I have this neat little thing here. That's kind of interesting that I could leverage, you know? Yeah. There's not even a grudging appreciation. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's repulsion. It's frustration. I think that's something that's really interesting about the difference between this and Ed Norton's portrayal of Will. Ed Norton is mad at the Tooth Fairy the whole time. He, he, he's very aggressive the whole way. And you get this sense from Will that he's slowly starting to understand it. He's repulsed by it, but he's also like, mm-hmm. he, he can, the imagination is there in a different way. I don't know. It, it, there's, there's different things to appreciate in both those performances of Will and his interaction with Lecter. And it's more of like, th- there's, there's more fear, I think, in this than, I mean, there, there's, there's literally like Hannibal making a jump scare happen at Will in Red Dragon, the movie. Yeah. And it's again that mustache twirly kind of like let's show the monster in all of his glory type thing. Mm. Um, it's just really interesting. I was just going to check my notes real quick. Otherwise, we can go to my favorite segment. Yeah, sounds um, great. Unless anybody else had any uh, closing thoughts. I don't want to move us away. No. Okay. Um, moving on to my favorite segment, and I'll put it right here. It is. It is time for another <laughs> situational movie recommendation. Um. So for this situational movie recommendation, I was thinking in in the spirit of the um, Earth Two or uh, alternate universe casting. What's your favorite alternate casting? that actually happened. So like mm. when they rebooted uh, Planet of the Apes and recast Caesar, instead of Roddy McDowell, they had Andy Serkis in, in that kind of spirit where Brian Cox played Hannibal Lecter and then Anthony Hopkins played him later. What would be your favorite version of that? And yeah, if there's two, two actors that have played the same character what would be your, which one's your favorite if it's the weird one, if that makes sense. This <laughs> is not easily hashtagable. <laughs> and it's, they, so someone has to have played them, right? It's not like they switched midway through a role or something like that. Are you, are you going back to the future? Is that your, go back to the future? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's acceptable. Like if that, they, that was going to be my first one and then I was going to dig in and find a, a different one, but I'll plug my back to the future thing now. So. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Let, tell us who, who it is. Cause I, I don't remember who was initially cast as Marty McFly. Yeah. So it was um, initially Eric Stoltz and he did, what did he first, um, I can't remember if he was really known for anything right before Back to the Future. Mask. Hold on, please. <laughs> he was known for Mask. I don't know if that was before or after. Right. Who does he play in the Mask? Um, what's his name? The the main character. Um, uh, Rocky. Rocky. Rocky Dennis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Matt. Not the Mask. Mask. No, mask. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I have Mask on the brain. Having recently yeah. seen it. <laughs> he was in a. Uh, uh, Pulp Fiction, but that was obviously later. Right. I think it was because Mass came out in '85. It looks like, and then, and then, sort of, uh, sort of Back to the Future. So, yeah, I'm blanking on my trivia. So, cut all of this out, please. <laughs> <laughs> no promises. <laughs> I'm not really sure I have an answer for you for this one. Like I'm, I'm having enough trouble just thinking of 
when I've seen the same role done by different actors mm-hmm. at all, like without being purposefully drawn into it. I mean, easily easy ones would be superheroes, right? I mean, that that's right. probably Batman portrayal, yeah. Superman. And I mean, we can go to TV too. Like if there's a TV portrayal that you like, I know that's usually kind of a limiting factor. I mean, I still don't know. I, I can pick for you my favorite Batman, but I don't like, you know, each recast was such a clear, like, except for Clooney and Kilmer, each recast was such a clear delineation of a new set of films and a new goal, you know? Mm, right. It would have been weird if they kept the original, right? <laughs> it would have been weird if we saw, um, you know, if we saw Clooney come back for Nolan's films, like, it, it wouldn't <laughs> yeah. have made any sense. I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at my shelf here. I'm not sorry if this one's too abstract. I I I thought it might be easier. I I struggled to think of the Roddy McDowell Andy Circus one, so I guess that's indicative of the difficulty of the question. (laughs) I'll go Denver's own Don Cheadle as War Machine after Terrence Howard played War Machine. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Shots fired. (laughs) (laughs) Along those same lines, actually, as much as I love Ed Norton, um uh, um, uh, what's his face? Mark uh, Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo, fucking, he's my Hulk for the, till the end of time. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you go. I support that. I don't know, I, I've I've been in my head. I'm very unkind to Ed Norton for no good reason other than he's the dude standing next to Brad Pitt in Fight Club. <laughs> I'm like, why? Why is this the guy the main character? I like I like Durden so much more. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe within that, like, that's my favorite recast is (laughs) as the narrator. (laughs) How about Nicolas Cage as Superman? (laughs) Yeah. Bizarro universe, for sure. I would see that. I would pay to see that. I mean, he's playing, he's doing the voice for an animated thing, I guess. Oh, that's cool. Animated Superman. I mean, Eisenberg as Alex Luthor or whatever they name drop they did in Batman v Superman, right? You like him better than Hackman? See, I mean, I when was the last time I saw Hackman, right? <laughs> was I six? Like I, I pair of Lex Luthor is Michael Rosenbaum. So not to not to say I necessarily oh. like him better, but that that whole approach to the character was unexpected and fresh. Okay, here's his controversial and ca- scandal noted. Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor that's oh, that returns that, yes that is a superior yeah. luthor in my head i love him in that yeah that and I, while we're on superman yeah and since you said we could go to tv my favorite super clark kent slash superman and lex luthor are both from smallville so tom welling and michael rosenbaum uh, if i had to so, build a dc universe where i kind of cherry picked every every different version of all the characters they would be my superman and lex luthor mm-hmm are we going Aaron Eckhart or Tommy Lee Jones as Two Face? Um, oh, I, I know, mean, I know, I have an answer that's not the right no, one. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones, though. I, but seriously, because there was something about that the animated series Two Face that could be either the like serious tragic character or the sort of cartoony, goofy animated show villain, right? That struck a beautiful balance and. With Eckhart, like, we basically just see Harvey Dent 99% of the time. And then we kind of only see angry Harvey Dent at the very end. 
like there's almost no two-faced persona that comes out so much as there's just like the the guy who's given up but with tommy lee jones we get the the proper sort of scheming confused in his own head two-face that i got that you both really well. I, billy d williams yeah, <laughs> is <go>. my harvey <laughs> dent <laughs> i i will admit though that like you're right scott that the scene at the very end when he's like but carvey what about your coin you've always been a good friend bruce when he just like cuts back to like pure harvey like there's yeah. no there's no like you know it's like oh damn like i remember that's one of my favorite parts of that that movie that we actually yeah we get to see that duality the cut back where it's like and oh you get yeah to see you the know, dissociation much friend. better yeah there, there's, a, there's a clear split to his dissociative identity in that and i i mean I'll, I'll defend that movie regardless of its logic or its its actual merit um but yeah, Billy D. Williams on that one. I mean, we could also talk Jokers. Like, does D. Williams appear as Two Face at any point, or just no. as Dan? Oh, he does. Dan. He does in uh, Lego Batman. Okay, Lego. Yeah, but not in. He's he's just uh, Dent in Returns. The, or, yeah, um, Returns. Returns. Yeah. Do we see a Two Face in Gotham? I can't remember. Dent shows up. I don't remember how far the show got. I don't think with so. With Two Face. That show was wild. Whole show, so. It's very all over the place. Yeah, speaking yeah. of alternate world interpretations, that was super yeah. interesting. Giving us the the young Bruce mentored by the agent uh, Alfred, but or as a sort of peripheral story to a young Gordon, yeah. like just trying to establish a career instead of the usual of like the veteran Gordon coming in from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like that, yeah, that was all very interesting. I think in the end, sure. it just didn't know if it wanted to be Gotham Central or Batman Year Negative Five. Yeah, it's agreed. such a strange. Yeah, it was also tough too. Yeah, because all the villains that Bruce ends up fighting as Batman, like I guess now they're twenty years older than him as he's fighting them because right. you know it's because so many of them were right. adults in the Gotham. capacity in which they're going to exist is going to screw up the timeline. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie in which he appears as Gordon, but. Uh, uh, um <laughs> what's his name uh, oh. ripped ripped daddy uh uh gordon uh what's his name j jonah jameson what's yeah jk um, simmons i knew it was j initials he, he i i really liked him in the mustache and i also loved that that uh Instagram pick of him just getting super jacked. He's bigger than Batman before the so Justice League. So as the League only filming. person who liked Justice League, apparently on the entire <laughs> planet Earth, I, I actually didn't quite think he landed as um, Commissioner Gordon. In the performance? It felt, well, it, it worked great, but it felt like his Commissioner Gordon was supposed to be like Batman at the height of career Gordon. Uh, post Justice League Gordon of the like oh this is just as usual we're established we're in the thing uh-huh. and like he felt like he'd sort of stepped out of time to to go into that particular moment that was happening in the film but he was great for sure the mustache was amazing I also really liked um, I really love Jeffrey Wright as Gordon yeah that hasn't yeah, even yeah. come out yet and I don't even care right? no that's amazing. such a great choice right? I was going to say Alfred from um Jeremy Irons Alfred is yeah. is a great yeah. like the bitchiness and the passive aggressivity of that character right. in in the comics. I really love that as little yeah. as he is in those two films. 
Sorry, Zeke, and you then, keep on muting and getting interrupted. Oh, what were you going to say? Oh, no. Uh, no, I was going not to, not to pivot too hard, but give me Jeff Bridges' uh, Rooster Cogburn in True Grit over John Wayne's Rooster Cogburn. Oh, ten damn. Days, ten days out of the week. Damn. Every, I'll always take Jeff Bridges. <laughs> I don't know what half those words meant. <laughs> <laughs> I heard Jeff Bridges. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> All right. Sorry. That one was that kind out. of no, but it obtuse out. and weird. It worked out well. <laughs> Talking about different castings. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like once you steer it, like you said, towards the superheroes, like that's probably the oh, yeah. most lucrative for having multiple people play. There was a while where I was catalog- cataloging, not like characters who've been played by multiple actors, but actors who have played multiple superheroes. And I just, <laughs> I stopped because it was, a, it was too big. It was too much. <laughs> I think Chris Evans as Firestorm or Johnny Storm, like, mm-hmm. I love that casting. Yeah. There's a lot to defend in those first two Fantastic Four movies. It, they're I not good. I thought the first one was great. The second one became a mess, but I thought the first one was pretty solid. Considering it's Fantastic Four, I mean, I don't like the Fantastic Four to begin with. So, like, the fact that I cared at all about a Fantastic Four movie, I was like, all right, good job. I think the casting is, like, Michael Chiklis is, like... Oh, Yeah. Evans is great. I I don't know about uh, Invisible Woman or I, I I think it's hard to make Mister Fantastic as shitty as he is in the comics and have any empathy for him in a movie. Like Fan Four Stick was a terrible movie. I yeah. that that was such a bad version, and it just like you need Reed Richards to be an asshole. Well, that and like, I mean, I feel like in the comics more what he's about is like his intelligence than his elasticity. Right. And I feel, you know, and it's like it, that it, it's almost like you only see that when he's like working on stuff that's across the room. All right, I'm going to stretch over there because I'm right. doing this. And, you know, I feel like, I don't know if they feel like, oh, if we don't show enough of him stretching, the audience is going to feel robbed that it's like, but yeah. Especially, I don't know if you've read any of the Ultimate comics where he's like becomes the villain. Like, oh Ooh. shit, that stuff was great. <laughs> that was fucked up. <laughs> Yet another reason to read Ultimates. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. Thanks for answering that weird one, guys. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it went well. You know, you steered it back on course. That was a good one. Firmly, yeah. Does that? Uh, should we move on to next month? Do you think or? That's all I had. We could talk comic books forever. So (laughs) (laughs) that's a different podcast. Yeah. We might, we might end up talking comics after my next selection. Oh, Um, I'm not like, we might get there. Right. But um, (laughs) yeah. So next month I'm a movie selector and it's time finally to watch super eight. Oh damn. Yeah. You can find on Amazon prime. If you have it, if not, we can do the login shuffle. I firstly, I just really liked this movie when I saw it. Rewatched it a couple times around when it came out and then just haven't seen it since in forever and just filed it away as I like that. It was good. And that's it. So I'm really excited to go re-examine it. But I'm also really excited to go re-examine this um, as a J.J. Abrams film. Oh, yeah. Examine Abrams and his entire career up through now. So I'm just trying to argue about Star Wars, aren't you? (laughs) No, actually, I'm kind of hoping we don't. But I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about about Abrams and then in particular to draw connections between him and Snyder and Whedon and other, you know, this particular pantheon of directors that keep cropping up lately around big franchises. Um, Has anybody so, you know, else we'll seen see it? see where that goes. 
Mm-hmm. I saw that. it years ago. Okay, yeah. so I'm Same the only one coming right fresh. Hmm. Okay. Interesting, yeah. But I'm also really excited to talk about this in terms of just what it is, the film itself, and, and it's the way it looks back at the earlier films of the, I'll say the Spielberg era, but I mean the Spielberg films as perceived by people our age who were therefore children, you know? Mm-hmm. like So not the Jawses, but the E.T.'s. Important so, yeah. distinction. <laughs> yeah, no, I just I'm, yeah. I'm I'm excited to talk about the film itself and its you know way it looks at other things and its relation to other things. And I'm excited to talk about J.J. Abrams. Yeah, so, I'm I'm excited. It'll be cool yeah. to see that for the first time. I'm also a little worried that I'm going to rewatch it now and go, oh, I hate this now. <laughs> just you know, no reason I should, but we'll we'll see. I guess. We should do that. We should do a, yeah. a I well, hate this cycle. I think that'd be fun. <laughs> I will say though, something I think I'm still going to love is the train crash that happens at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, talk about like Michael Mann and deciding to just not cut something and be like, no, this whole shot has to be in here. Start to finish. Like that was beautiful. So I'm excited to see that again for sure. Yeah. I think we should also talk about, I mean, not, not Joel, but like watching super eight before, Stranger Things and versus watching Super 8 after Ooh, Stranger yeah. Things. That'll yeah, be yeah. Done for sure. That'll be for sure. That's definitely going to characterize my viewing. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really excited to look at it as a a thing at a certain point in time that looks backwards and then something we now look backwards at. Like it's gonna yeah, be, yeah. It's going to be great. Yeah, would there have been a Stranger Things if there was no Super 8? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. I'm even more excited now. <laughs> Guys, can we just, you know, do that tomorrow? No, no. All right. So anyway, thank you all for joining me again for another podcast. Um, thank you, Joel, for bringing this Manhunter. I said earlier, I really like, I like that we approached the wider Hannibal, you know, stuff from this, like, chronologically early, but stylistically very oblique angle. That turned out really well. Yeah, and, I think uh, this was course, the best way to talk about it without it just becoming me word vomiting. And there was a, a fair amount <laughs> yeah. of that, but it, it was a, relatively controlled. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and thank you, Tim and Zeke, for joining us, of course. Of course. Uh, thank you, listeners, if you're still around. <laughs> <laughs> and until next month, so well, see you then. Good night. Bye. Bye. Bye.